This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, economist Dambisa Moyo offers an insider's view on how corporate boards operate. Her book is titled How Boards Work and How They Can Work Better in a Chaotic World. She's interviewed by Wall Street Journal reporter Emily Glazer. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Dambisa Moyo, and congratulations on your book, How Boards Work and How They Can Work Better in a Chaotic World. You were a number of... Thank you. You wear a number of hats. You're a global economist, a corporate board director, and of course now, and this is not your first book, author. Um, You've learned a lot in your more than a decade on different corporate boards across industries. And in many ways, this book is a playbook for how boards work, how they're evolving, and how they can adapt in the future. I actually want to go back, though, to when you were 39 years old. That was when you joined your first board, SAB Miller, and your writing on emerging markets and international issues really set you apart from others that had come up through corporate America. How did you learn how to be a good board member? So thank you so much for the opportunity to be here and to talk to you about uh, my book, How Boards Work, but also to give you a little bit of an insight into um, the challenges as well as the opportunities for not just boards, but the corporations that they lead. Um, You know, your question's interesting because I do worry sometimes that, um, you know, writing this kind of a book gives the impression that it was always meant to be, it was easy and straightforward. And the reality is I'd actually tried for more than um, a half a decade to get on boards unsuccessfully. Um, and um, as you rightly point out that the, you know, in terms of global, large, complex um, organizations, my first board was indeed SAB Miller. And the real opportunity arose, um, uh, you know, in many ways, surprisingly, um, because I, I am not and I was not a, a conventional board member. Uh, as mm-hmm. you pointed out, I was 39. I'm obviously black and a woman. Um, I was born and raised in Africa. Um, but also I did not come through the C-suite, which is a traditional pool um, for uh, board candidates. And, you know, what really did set me apart, as you mentioned, is Uh, really uh, coming through a perspective of a much more global purview. Um, I had uh, traveled uh, to uh, very fortuitously to over uh, 80 countries now around the world. And having that perspective of developed versus developing democratic versus non-democratic economies, et cetera, was was particularly important. But what have I learned? Um, I think there are a number of key takeaways that I hope are clear, uh, clearly uh, outlined in the book. Um, first of all, uh, you know, by the time uh, you're on a board, the, the reality is these are very complex organizations. The um, board of Barclays, where I served, um, was a, a company that's been around for 360 years. And mm-hmm. if you take a step back and think about the historical context of many of these corporations, they've gone through wars, pandemics, um, you know, good times and bad, but somehow managed to to stay uh, afloat. And Mm -hmm. um, for me, I think that requires a lot of open mindedness, um, good judgment uh, in the face of uh, of complex issues in order to steady the ship and really do the job as a fiduciary, but also a custodian of these very, very important uh, organizations. And so listening more than speaking, I think, is a is a, cre- a key takeaway, but also really appreciating um, by the time something appears on the board agenda, it means it's extremely difficult. Um, and to quote President Obama, if it were easy, somebody else would have solved it. Um, and mm. therefore, we do need to think about these issues in, in their sort of more fulsome uh, and, and, and more um, a sort of broad uh, perspective um, and not just in a sort of ideological, there's only one answer kind of way. Um, so those right. are some of the I've learned. Well, your book breaks down a couple of really big issues, you know, what boards are and how they operate, the risks, you know, for the future, and of course, a lot of the big issues that are playing out now. I want to first look at uh, one point that you made. I'm going to read from your book. You quote, the changing times have made boards more indispensable than ever. So how has that changed in the last year? We're, we're in this global pandemic. I would love to hear what this last year and change has meant as a board member. Yes, you know, it's been uh, phenomenal in, in many respects, but it's important to put these things, I think, in context. So um, in my book, I talk about the first board really being uh, established or at least recorded in the 1600s. 
And in many ways, um, if you look back in history over several centuries, the fundamental mandate of the board hasn't really changed much. Um, I would say that traditionally, boards have had two responsibilities. One is providing oversight on strategy, and number two is hiring, and in some instances, firing uh, the CEO. Um, but really, over the last half decade, even more, um, there's been a material shift towards the need for corporations to take on a much more um, social and uh, cultural uh, responsibilities and be good citizens, uh, mm -hmm. if you will. And that obviously uh, was a, a really a counterforce to Milton Friedman's uh, 1970 article in, in, in which he basically planted a flag in the sand, uh, essentially suggesting that uh, the financial primacy, um, shareholders and financial primacy were really the, the key uh, uh, sort of attributes or important role that corporations mm -hmm. Way. That changed the big the shareholder versus stakeholder primacy. It's like you can't talk about it without saying how Milton Friedman is maybe not in the modern times that we're in right now. Well, I, you know, frankly, it's a whole lot, another conversation. I mean, I do think that he has been um, misquoted somewhat. I mean, he was very clear in that article that, you know, the nature of how corporations, uh, you know, uh, participate in the global economy and in society would very much be driven by social and, uh, and uh, cultural context. And I think that mm. that gave enough degrees of freedom to actually uh, to think more broadly about uh, what the mission and role of corporations are. And of course, in in the 140 character world, we've basically uh, given the short shrift and blamed him for for the financial primacy argument. Um, but that changed as as you know in 2019 with the business roundtable, mm -hmm. um, essentially uh, articulating a very clear uh, broader. Uh, or I should say widening aperture with respect to the responsibility of corporations to incorporate not just financial shareholders, but the whole range of shareholders, such as communities, employees, regulators, and society writ large. Um, but yes, you know, yes. just to come back to your specific question, what does this mean about the changing role? There's a whole um, sort of proliferation around areas such as uh, environmental, social, and governance uh, questions, ESG, which according to JP Morgan now represent about $45 trillion of assets under management. So hugely important, everything from climate change to racial and gender uh, justice, um, concerns about worker advocacy, data privacy, voter rights, gun control. I mean, it's really opened up a, a wide um, uh, sort of a, a, a array of, of issues, um, notwithstanding the fact that board members are not elected. Um, mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, I think the last year has reminded us that we don't only have a strategic role thinking about how companies will evolve over time. We have to um, block and tackle in the here and now to be able to adapt to in a more tactical way to when things um, go awry, whether it's a pandemic or a financial crisis. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I, I won't belabor the point, but I. I did publish an article in the Harvard Business Review um, in around um, March or April of, of 2020, um, in which I, I basically talk about how uh, you know, as a board member, we were initially incredibly concerned about operations. Are people safe? Are people able to log into their computers? Do they have access to health care? We right. then start to think about the financial health of the company. Can this company run? Um, do they have a lot of debt or are they able to cover their, you know, the, can they use their cash flows to cover their responsibilities? And then you start to think about, um, you know, other considerations such as, uh, you know, the, the broader marketplace and, and how uh, we can step up in a world that's incredibly challenged, if you remember, with also very little uh, information. So that's how it's changed, I would say, from a broader strategic role to a much more tactical uh, role. And that, that, to me, is part and parcel of being a good board member. Absolutely. And you write about how many people think the buck stops with the CEO. But in fact, there are all these risks that board members take on, given, you know, strategy around the company and operations and, you know, not having just short term thinking. A big part of board members role, as you write, is CEO succession. And we know now that CEOs and what's expected of them has really expanded quite a bit. Can you Tell us a little bit about how you've been involved in CEO succession in the past and if there are different questions that you're asking these days that fit into what's expected of business leadership. 
Yes, you know, the, the truth is that, um, you know, I, I think it's really important that we all understand that in, in a sense, um, corporations are, are living organisms. They're basically a collection of human beings and human beings change, context change. Uh, you know, I was reminded very recently by a board colleague um, uh, from an, a company I served on a, a while ago who's in his 80s. And he said, the only thing I can guarantee you in his 80-year life is that you're always going to be surprised. It'd be a pandemic, it'd be a financial crisis. <laughs> It could be the rise of China. It could be, you know, any manner of geopolitical risks, Brexit, um, you know, America first strategy, etc. Um, the list goes on. <laughs> You're always going to be surprised, and and I think that that's a very important uh, uh, frame in thinking about how organizations um, run, but also about the selection of the CEO. Traditionally, uh, you know, boards, and I, I have been involved in both hiring and in some instances, I'm afraid firing um, or certainly sent part of the job. <laughs> Yes, um, you know it's an it's a it's an it's an unpleasant part of the job, um, but uh, it's it's part of the job nevertheless. Um, but you know we've traditionally looked at um, a CEO candidate's financial acumen and their operational experience. Have they managed teams? What's their leadership style? How does the their leadership style marry with where a company is? If a company needs to um, you know restructure and reduce costs, you know is this a, a CEO who can lead the charge? through a difficult time? How do they think about strategic uh, opportunities in an era that might be much more positive and constructive? And so that's how mm -hmm. we've traditionally approached this. And I think there's frankly been a big area missing, which is um, about probing um, the sort of ethical compass and the moral compass of, mm. uh, of candidates. Now, uh, how do we, how have we done that? We have, I mean, we relied uh, very heavily on, uh, on references, um, but obviously, when you're we're living in a world where in just 18 months, um, over 400 CEOs and business leaders lost their jobs because of Me Too, it does sort of uh, uh, sort of mm -hmm. really bring uh, much more into stark relief the importance of ethics. Mm -hmm. um, and so one of the articles or the discussions in the book that I, I really tried to emphasize is that that's a muscle that um, organizations are going to have to really strengthen, mm -hmm. not just for selecting the CEO, but also for selecting board members, thinking about the organization uh, more generally as well. The mm -hmm. ethical question is going to move us from just thinking about opportunities as, is it profitable? Is it legal? Into the realm of, well, wait a second, is it also ethical? Um, does right. this comport with how we want our brand to be seen or the organization to be viewed? Absolutely. And you can't just say to someone like, are you ethical? Are you moral? It's not as simple as that. I believe there was a specific question that you said you like to ask, which is, um, I think it was, you know, what's the worst thing you've done to someone else? Am I getting that right? Am I remembering correctly? So it's the question is, what's the worst thing you've done to another human being? Um, and, you know, I actually was uh, joking with my, my siblings and my friends and saying, you know, I think this is actually a great date question as well. So people should use it. <laughs> But, you know, Emily, the truth is that these are not um, gotcha questions. There's not necessarily a right or wrong answer. And I think that that's really, really trying to get at this uh, challenge of, uh, of the complexity of the issues that boards have to deal with. We're not looking for a, a box tick. Yes, this is the right answer. It can't possibly be the case that there's a, um, always a right or wrong answer. And in mm -hmm. fact, because we're operating in different cultures, different um, you know, ideological um, societies, different jurisdictions, legally and regulatory, um, it means that we always have to be very open-minded and judicious with our, our sort of opinions and, and, and ideologies. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, well, I will say when I read that question, I really took a beat myself and had to think like, what is the worst thing I've done to another human being? And what would I feel comfortable saying? Like, it, you know, is it something when you were 10 years old or it really makes you think a lot. Um, so another really big part of being a board member is helping to develop company strategy, direction. And you write a lot about assessing business units and how you need a mix of data analysis, market context and other measures. Um, you were cautioned by an external external auditor to not fall into a trap when evaluating business units. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, this was very early in my board career. Um, it was an external auditor who said, you know, people tend to be very focused on businesses that, that look like they might 
cause trouble. Um, and he, he cautioned me and said, you know, you should also be as vigilant in reviewing and assessing the performance of businesses that seem to be doing too well. Um, you know, we tend to think, oh, that's brilliant. This company or this business unit is doing so wonderfully. We don't need to worry about that. But actually, that's exactly when you should probe, you know, what kind of a market allows a business to thrive um, is this a monopoly? What does this mean from a regulatory perspective? What does this mean from a competition perspective? There are a lot of questions that should emerge. Make sure that you're not doing things that are unethical or, of course, illegal, you know, illegal or indeed uh, sort of, uh, you know, dare I say it, corrupt. Um, and mm -hmm. so uh, I thought that that's a you know, tremendously important advice, again, in a world that's incredibly complex and chaotic in the sense that we have a risk of deglobalization, you know, uh, lots of issues with respect to technology and disruption and what that might lead to. Um, I think that it's really important for us to be vigilant, not just on the downside, but also on the, on the upside opportunities when we see them. Indeed. I want to take a few moments to talk about some specific instances and anecdotes that you mentioned about your own board experience in the book and how that helped um, you learn more from those experiences. You mentioned how, of course, there are all these things that you just cannot plan for. Um, and sometimes this you just can't anticipate it. So Barrett Gold's share price, you write, swung from $7 to $53 while you were on the board. Wow. Um, what's that like as a director to have that kind of, you know, fluctuation? Well, it, for someone like myself, I mean, who was relatively new as a, as a board member um, in general and in corporate governance, I mean, it's quite traumatic. I mean, I think people who, this is why you want people who have knowledge and savvy and have been able to navigate companies through challenging times. I mean, the, the thing about Barrett Gold in particular is that it's a, it's a price taker. Um, you know, they are a company that relies on um, mining uh, minerals such as gold and copper that are actually uh, not priced by Barrick, um, they're priced by the market. And so you are a price taker. There are many global events that can heavily influence uh, not just your performance in terms of your operations, but also uh, the uh, the share price as it did. I mean, the good news we shouldn't forget is that Barrick today is trading above $20, so it bounced back. And Very good point. <laughs> To to you know to a company uh, company's board, but also to the company to be able to turn that kind of a challenging environment around. Indeed, and it's not just market fluctuation. You were on the board of SAB Miller going back. That's your first time that you joined as a director um, when it was bought for a hundred billion dollars in 2016, which I believe you said the largest M&A deal that year and one of the larger deals. Period. Um, the board initially didn't think the company would be bought. What was going on back then? Look, you know, I think this is uh, another reason why in the book I suggest that uh, hubris is a very good thing to <laughs> is to to avoid. Um, anything can happen, and this is right. really anything can happen. You know, um, you know. Aside from that transaction, I've been on boards um, in, in over a decade now, just over 10 years of serving on boards. I've had a chairman die in office. I've had activists in the stock. I've had expropriated assets. I've had regulatory fines that were into the billions. Um, a company that was trading in negative retained earnings, I mean, which is really, if you think about it, quite um, shocking. Um, wow. Which about a share price that's as high as 53, as low as seven bucks and what that might mean. Um, but, you know, I do think that um, in terms of that transaction in particular, you know, the board had made a number of assumptions. We were the second largest uh, uh, beverage company, but, um, you know, obviously a large beer mm -hmm. in the world. And we just thought, gosh, the notion that the number one company would swallow the number two company um, mm -hmm. seemed so distant, partly because um, we were work we were competing in the same areas, and there was obviously going to be regulatory antitrust issues that we thought would be hard to work through. Um, right. We also were we, we we totally misjudged the fact that in order to buy us, this company, number one company, Anheuser Busch, had to basically do the largest bond transaction ever, um, forty billion dollars, um, and we just thought it's just so implausible they wouldn't surely wouldn't do that. Um, and again, boy, were we wrong. But to add to that. 
you know, I was the chairman of the risk committee at that time. And not only had we assumed that the Brexit vote would not happen in 2016, mm. but we thought if it were to happen, there's no way people would vote Brexit. And again, um, that had material consequences for the valuation of the company and really the, the sort of increasing the, uh, the or altering the probabilities of the trans transaction getting done. But, you know, the transaction did get done. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, I think that that's a lesson there that, you know, anything can happen. And I, you know, I, I also write in the book that there's no company that's too big, too regulated, too powerful that will not or could not be visited upon by an activist. And it's the same kind of attitude. Um, I've been in a number of boards where the, an activist uh, share uh, share uh, shareholder comes into the stock and you think, how is this possible? But anything can happen. Anything. It's fascinating to hear about it in retrospect and all those things that needed to happen, all the stars to align, and sometimes they do. Um, you mentioned Brexit, obviously, geopolitical um, changes is something that's so big. We're going to get more onto that a little bit later, but just one more quick um, anecdote from your experiences on boards. It was fascinating to read about. Um, you were on the Barclays board as it considered withdrawing from Africa. Yes. What was that like? So, you know, it's, um, it is for me personally quite traumatic. I was born and raised in Africa. Um, you know, my first bank account was in an African branch of Barclays Bank. Um, wow. At the time I was serving on the board had been in Africa for a hundred years. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, in many ways I had to separate the sort of emotional, personal me, uh, you know, someone born in Africa, someone who's very committed to, to Africa's progress, uh, ongoing progress in society and in the world um, from the sort sort of the job of being a fiduciary and a custodian of an organization to make sure that it can uh, survive and uh, and thrive over the long term. Um, it was a very hard decision. I wanted Bar uh, Barclays to stay uh, in Africa, but at the same time, the regulatory environment, if you recall, was post mm -hmm. Um, 2008 financial crisis and uh, Barclays is, is what's called a GCFI, a globally significant um, and systemically important uh, um, company. And in, on that basis, uh, you know, the regulators had increased some of the capital requirements and, and that made it very, very challenging to, indeed to stay um, in, in the countries and that we were invo invested in in the manner that we were. And mm -hmm. so very tough, but I think it sort of, again, underlines, underscores this challenge of having to do um, you know, things that are perhaps antithetical to what you would like to see happen in the interest of making sure that you're doing your fiduciary duty, but also making sure that um, over time as a custodian, this company continues to, to survive and thrive. And I'm happy to say Barclays is also very much uh, uh, alive and kicking. Mm -hmm. You mentioned GCFE, and as a former banking reporter for five years, that just kind of shook me a little bit. I haven't <laughs> heard that one in a while. <laughs> yes. um, so I want to go, I want to go a little broader for a moment, you write a lot about board makeup, how someone even gets to be on a board and then the whole kind of uh, power structure within a board to go really high level for a moment. Um, board makeup has been a topic of debate recently. And I'm curious, should employees sit on a corporate board, something that Senator Elizabeth Warren has called for and as you write exists in Germany? Yes. You know, um, let me just um, take a step back and say the following, because I've had the privilege of serving on corporate boards in different jurisdictions, the US, the UK, um, Canada, uh, and uh, also in continental Europe, um, you know, I'm constantly thinking about ways for what what is best practice, what can we do to enhance board um, uh, activity, and and I do address the specific question around employees, but also as you know in the book, I talk about ways to really upgrade uh, boards, and I'm sure we'll get mm -hmm. to that. Um, but to the question about employees, it's a really interesting one. And the, the, the board structure in Germany in particular is slightly different. As you know, it's a two-tiered system. Um, and so there is a sense that boards is both a managerial board as well as a supervisory one. And so it, it is slightly mm -hmm. different from what you might see um, el elsewhere. I will just say um, before, again, I address the specific question that there is a, low, a lot of overlap in terms of the governance responsibility. All these boards have audit committees. They all have compensation committees. And in that respect, I think that there's very um, small margins of differences 
and of course this one about employees is an important one. Mm-hmm. Um, I recently wrote an article about uh, the fact that I do believe that uh, you know two things. One, uh, we are more and more in the boardroom able to get the viewpoint of the employee base into the boardroom um, in a way that I think uh, is really important. And technology is allowing us now to go beyond the sort of company. Uh, a sort of a managed, uh, you know, YouGov surveys, yes. employee well, surveys. You, you write about, um, you know, door. like Glassdoor, Blind. Exactly. It, so you're so at board members are following that to try to oh, get absolutely. that true. Absolutely. We want to hear from our clients. We want to hear from uh, stakeholders, our employees. Absolutely. It's the only way we can make the best decisions. So I think that that's really important. We are getting that message loud and clear. And there'll always be scope for improvements as technology continues to evolve. Um, but on the other hand, you know, I do argue and I've written a number of articles. I wrote something for Bloomberg um, Opinion a, a few weeks ago um, talking about how it's really important, I think, um, for us to to make sure that that there still is um, some responsibilities that are uh, and decision make you know, decision points that are made at the boardroom or at the managerial level because um, the organizational leaders tend to have a much broader purview. So if you are in one aspect or one business unit in a company, you might have a very different risk tolerance from the way the company uh, in its entirety or the enterprise in its entirety should be viewed if we wanted to think about something like risk. Um, mm-hmm. And so I do sometimes Um, And I've generally made the point that I think we have to be careful about bringing um, people uh, or, you know, employees or uh, um, certain uh, viewpoints into the boardroom, powerful shareholders. We have to be careful about that, um, you know, which I talk about. Uh, large uh, um, non-independent board uh, strategic stakes uh, activists onto the board because you don't want them to to bring a a view that might be very narrow um, Mm -hmm. and maybe doesn't take into consideration the sort of more fulsome picture. Um, But these are evolving debates and discussions that uh, boards, I think the best boards have all the time because things Mm -hmm. are changing. Um, But we do want to make sure that we get that message in from the employees uh, uh, in particular, but also more generally from society writ large. And in terms of the the makeup of the board, it isn't just a question about, you know, should employees be part of it or not? It really is also about what kind of diversity exists on boards. You write about how, of course, major institutional shareholders, there's legislation in California, NASDAQ proposal recently. Um, What data do you seek out to track and monitor when it comes to diversity and inclusion, either on boards in general or the employee base, which is, again, something that is definitely at the forefront for many, many major companies? Yes, absolutely. And look, let's just take a a minute here to to fully appreciate that, uh, you know, as my my very good friend, Melody Hobson, who's now the chairman of Starbucks, uh, often says the numbers don't lie. Um, And we know that the numbers tell us very clearly that more diverse boards, corporations um, and C-suites just do better. Their return on equity is far superior to the cost of capital. Their ability to, as I usually say, not just survive, but to thrive and compete is enhanced by having more diversity. And in the book, I cite some specific data from McKinsey reports, Harvard Mm -hmm. Business You've done a lot of work in this area. So it's it's not a matter of window dressing. It's a matter of if you want to compete in the 21st century, you need to be um, really hypersensitive uh, to the issue of, of diversity. Diversity of views, diversity of race, gender, um, backgrounds, I think is absolutely salient for long-term success. Now, having say, said that, Boards have some levers to influence this, um, and we, you know, fortunately, we we we've talked already about our ability to hire the CEO. Um, that is a real opportunity for us, not just to hire diverse candidates, but also to think about whether whoever is taking that seat can be a standard bearer for Mm. understanding and really pushing the agenda around a a more diverse uh, um, society, a more more diverse uh, company. Um, But also we do that through compensation and not just diversity issues, but issues around ESG broadly um, are absolutely now part and parcel on a percentage basis, a considerable part 
of, of how we determine compensation, um, certainly for the CEO as well as the uh, top management and business leaders. And I think it will continue to be that. But you know, mm -hmm. that said, and notwithstanding what I've just said, um, we don't want to be in a world where we're fighting discrimination with discrimination. So high-performing white guys are absolutely welcome in companies and they should be encouraged um, to compete and succeed um, as much as uh, any other group. Um, but there are clearly gaps and we have been uh, we've been uh, certainly uh, uh, lagging behind in terms of uh, remedying the, the shortfall in, di in diversity. And I'm, I'm pleased to say that, you know, the, certainly the companies I'm involved with, but more generally, um, there's a real sense that this is not just about employees and boards, et cetera. It's also about subcontractors, people who are advising us in terms of uh, uh, the, the, in, in ter the external auditors, the people who are managing the pension fund money. Um, you know, there's much more that corporations can do. And of course, many of these companies have large uh, events and uh, gatherings across the United States, across the world. There's a lot of scope for um, for companies to say, you know what, we want to know more information about what these towns and these cities record is in terms of education, in terms of employment, in terms of criminal justice, and in terms of healthcare to their populations. I mean, there's a lot more we can do. And I, I think that it's an exciting period um, mm -hmm. to think about uh, to think about diversity beyond just sort of the, a narrative, which, uh, you know, sometimes people um, just push. Mm -hmm. It's almost someone has described it to me as like a spoken wheel model. It's not just the company itself. Like you said, it's all these other pieces that come together. Despite even talking about this right now and how much progress has been made and the thought that goes into the future, there was a moment that you wrote about in your book that frankly made my jaw drop. Um, going back to May 2010, you were at an annual shareholder meeting and a shareholder stood up and said, um, something quite shocking. And I, I would love to hear you tell this story. Yeah, sure. So basically the context was um, I was on the board of Barclays Bank and we had an annual general meeting. Um, we had certainly over a thousand shareholders show up. Uh, it was you know, post-financial crisis. So obviously a lot of enthusiasm in a massive hall. And I was the only visible minority, meaning I was the only woman on the board um, and I was the only uh, black person. Um, and so in that respect, uh, already standing out. And you're right, a shareholder stood up during Q&A and uh, pointed very aggressively at me and said, I want to know what the credentials are of that statutory woman that she can serve on this board. And, you know, thankfully, uh, I had spent uh, almost 10 years working at Goldman Sachs and I had I have a PhD in economics. So I felt pretty confident that I could uh, justify my existence on the board. Oh, yes. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I often say to uh, to minority candidates and to you know people who are interested in boards that we, we should not be in a position where we have to lead with our race or gender. Um, we should be leading the conversation in, in our abilities. Um, we work, we try to work extremely hard. We want to learn, we want to grow, we want to contribute. Um, and it's not about getting any breaks or any favors. Um, we want a fair, a fair shot at these opportunities. And, and I think that is uh, really was my big takeaway from that experience. I will tell you that when we came off the podium, uh, three of my, my white um, male colleagues said, oh gosh, thank God they didn't ask me about that um, because I don't know what I would have answered. I don't think I'd be able to have answered anything credible uh, at the time. Wow. So, but you know, the good news is that the world's changing. Uh, you know, we now in the UK, for example, they've got about 34% um, of uh, women represented on the, uh, um, on the, on the FTSE, um, uh, most important FTSE companies. Mm -hmm. You know, more generally, I think we all find it a little bit odd and peculiar when you look at a board and you don't see um, diversity or women and, and racially. I think it's just odd. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, thank, and certainly the boards I'm on, I mean, it was just it's an anathema to, to anything that they would see now. I mean, we all are, are very much attuned to, to more diversity and it's value add. Most importantly, it is value add for, for competition. Thank you for sharing that story. And I think it ties into what you were talking about where company culture, you know, do people want to be a part of these companies? Do they feel included? Do they want to stay? Even when you bring people in, do people want to stay? Um, you write about how company culture is so important. It's a really big part of being a board member. Can you describe a little bit more about how boards get involved in crafting a company's cultural message? It feels very abstract. So what is that like, uh, you know, when you're in the weeds? 
Yeah, you know, it's it's a wonderful question because it's incredibly complex and will vary from business to business. I recall on at least one occasion um, where a board, uh, we had a, a visitor, someone who was a cultural uh, sort of champion, and uh, I was really struck by something he said. He said, look, you know, it's actually in a way easier to influence and change and pivot culture of organizations where there's a risk that an employee can die by being on the job. And he was talking mm. about um, having advised the National Health Service in, the, in Britain, advised an energy company where they'd had an accident. Um, he talked about being an advisor for culture to an army. Um, again, you know, people will not go home if they don't ascribe or follow certain cultural norms. Uh, the challenge is much more when you think about how to drive culture in places where, you know, you can work in a bank, for example, and the, the, the risks are perhaps mitigated, uh, considerably mitigated um, of, uh, of dying on the job. Um, and I think that it's in, it, the, the way that the board engages, whether they think more about process versus outcome, and I love mm -hmm. something that Hastings has talked about vis-a-vis -vis Netflix, you know, if you um, are trying to produce penicillin, I talk about this in the book as well, you want as few degrees as, as possible, um, degrees of freedom as possible. The, the penicillin tablet or the vaccine that I get should be pretty much identical to the one that you get. Um, and in that respect, that you could argue that the process is really critical and everything needs to be, you know, to the nth degree the same. Um, that's a very, very different cultural uh, setting for Netflix, for example, where people are, need to be creative. They need to come up with their you know, ideas as, uh, as far-fetched or crazy as they may seem, and they want them to throw it on the wall and see what could come out of it. And so the degrees of freedom are much broader. Um, and of course, in that respect, the, uh, the role of the board and how they set um, the, the sort of the, the check and challenge the culture of the uh, company will be, will be quite different. But, you know, I will just uh, say really how we do it is it, it, and check this and, and make sure it's working is, is, is an evolving, uh, it's much more of an art than a science. I mean, we, we are interested in uh, thinking about things like nudge, you know, the cast sustain type of agenda. Should we just nudge employees to change their behaviors? Should we penalize people, um, literally dock them of their bonus if they behave badly? Should we incentivize people with, for bonuses? Um, there's so many different tools um, and we are, we're constantly uh, looking at how these types of, uh, of tools and efforts um, with, within the levers that we have and powers that we have um, can be actually impactful for changing culture. But it's, it's, a, it's definitely, uh, you know, school's not out on this one. This is something that we'll continue to deal with. And, you know, thankfully, I don't think that there's an equilibria point where we say, mm -hmm. okay, that's the end. Nothing right. more to be discussed. It will always- No more work on culture. I don't think that's gonna, <laughs> can you just imagine? Um, and I think it became even more relevant during this global pandemic. Many workforces went remote, um, question about employee well-being um, and employee loyalty. And at the same time, we've seen this whole employee activist movement, or at least increasingly more vocal employees. I just want to go back to this one point that we looked at briefly earlier, where as a board member, you're saying, you know, you're not just having whatever management is presenting on how employees are feeling. You're going out to seek it and try to get information um, to really get the full breath of how employees are doing. What was that like for you as a board member during the pandemic? And how are you trying to figure that out? You know, it's it's incredibly um, challenging because you're straddling a line of thinking about the here and now, but also recognizing that at some point, these companies are going to have to stand up um, and and continue to operate. Um, and what does that new world look like? So yes, absolutely. You're in the here and now. You're blocking and tackling. You're trying to make sure that the company is in a position to compete and to also make sure people are healthy and safe and that it can operate and pay, pay salaries. Um, and it can do that in a safe way. But at the same time, you want to make sure that when the company comes out, um, any learnings, any changes, we're all talking about what does work, uh, work-life balance, but also what does a work or an office look like um, mm -hmm. post-COVID, we are already trying to telegraph that few, those future scenarios. Um, clearly, the deployment of digitization, you know, thinking about both downside risks but upside opportunities. Yes, people are now at home. What does that mean for cyber risk? But also, what does that mean for productivity? So there's a lot of work um, in the 
these areas. And, and certainly, uh, I think the best boards, and I, I'm very proud of the work that we've done, um, you know, in our family office, but also more generally in the boards in which I serve, um, to really steer that course and say, we can't get sort of navel gazing in the here and now only, mm -hmm. because at some point, we've got to figure out how to to get back to um, a post-COVID uh, environment. And I think that that's really bad. That balancing act is really critical. Absolutely. And you talk so much and write so much about not just having short-term thinking, but being able to think about, you know, long-term what happens and also what risks might come in the future. One more quick question, then I want to get to some of these broader points that you bring up. Um, investors and employees and other stakeholders have really been demanding companies do more in environmental, social, and governance factors. I don't even think we were speaking for five minutes before you brought up ESG, which is at the <laughs> forefront of a lot right now. Um, you know, it's climate change change, pay equity, you even write a lot about how companies have to consider obesity. What role does the board serve on things, you know, ranging from mental health, gun control? Can you just walk us through? These are big topics. And I think many people may not realize where corporate boards come into play on those. Look, again, this is one of those areas which is very quickly evolving. Um, you know, if I look back on my board career, the first five years, this was always somewhat of a ring-fenced um, afterthought. We thought about community service or things we called CSR, you know, corporate social responsibility, were things we did out of the foundation. There were things that, you know, and you know, maybe we'd have an employee run. I, I you know, love running marathons and thinking about how we would raise money for the communities in which we operate. But that's changed so dramatically. Now we're much, we've gone through the whole narrative of thinking about risk mitigation, oh gosh, you know, greenhouse gases, issues around CO2, which continue to be critically important. But we're now moving into a world where, wait a minute, this is just good business. This is about integrated and integrating all of these aspects into how we operate on a regular basis. I mentioned to you already, 10 years ago, I was the only um, woman on, on my boards uh, and only black person. I mean, that would be insane in, in 2021. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I just can't even imagine now that I even lived in that uh, type of an environment. But there's no doubt about it. These things are, are very complicated and that there is no answer. You know, six months ago, I didn't think or certainly before um, the tragic death of uh, uh, a murder of, uh, of George Floyd, I, I didn't think that boards would have to opine on, on racial dynamics to the extent that we've had to do. We didn't, I didn't expect to have to think about voting rights, but guess what? We did and we do and we have to. And there is no sort of uh, uh, compass to say, well, when this happens, this is what you need to do. And very much the uh, environment that we're in now, I have to think about what, what in six months, what might it be? Um, mm -hmm. And so I'm very interested and in the book, I, I really try to push for uh, the, the thinking and the efforts around these issues um, to make sure that we're very transparent so that we don't end up with a situation where Asian employees say, wait a second, we've got violence against Asian employees, but you were so enthusiastic and outwardly spoken when you were talking about Black Lives Matter. Why are you not doing that for Asians? We want to be transparent in what, what we're thinking about. We want it to be sustainable. So whatever it is, we want it to be able to have teeth longer term. We want it to be, in, in, I think, uh, innovative. Um, I think looking for solutions that work in the here and now um, but are not really innovative um, in terms of changing the mold. I don't really think um, gel. And then there's so many other aspects. They have mm -hmm. to be considerate of different cultures. I mm -hmm. mean, uh, I was just asked not too long ago um, by a, a gentleman who said he identified himself as being very conservative, religious, white, and said, you know, what is the board doing for me? I don't hear any consideration of my views. And I, I was very struck by that. So it is about all these things and bringing all those voices in. Um, mm -hmm. But I think also, most of all, um, really understanding that we try really hard to reduce the amount of the degree of the of the trade-offs. We don't want to leave anybody behind. Um, and so thinking about things, uh, you know, I talked about uh, racial discrimination, not fighting discrimination with discrimination um, and making sure everybody feels like they have an opportunity mm -hmm. uh, in the organization, but also in things like climate change, making sure that um, we're not we're not just racing towards um, solutions that ignore the fact that 1.5 billion people around the world have no access to sustainable, cost-effective, uh, and 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 uh, and reliable energy. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got to come up with scalable solutions um, that make sure that people are not ending up 
uh, with uh, you know in, in more dire straits. And that maybe this one last thing I would just say about mm-hmm. this um, is that you know I think also boards have to be highly attuned to second order effects. Um, and so when people, uh, for example, put pressure on on investors to defund an energy company, um, we need to really understand what that means and knock on effects for not just impoverishing people around the world, but really um, changing and altering the trajectory of people's ability, especially people like myself who come from the developing world, to, to, to actually get educated, to get access to healthcare and to live a decent life. So there are mm-hmm. second order effects. Um, you look at the southern border of the United States, all those types of challenges um, must be thought about in a sensible um, and considered way. And this is not at all to uh, dismiss the urgency and importance of, of getting to uh, uh, real solutions in all of mm-hmm. these areas. Um, but I think there is this uh, nuance that needs to be appreciated as we as we delve through and challenge, go through these challenges. Absolutely. And, you know, we mentioned before some of your time on uh, the prior boards you served on. And I should just note you're now on the boards of Chevron and 3M. So just wanted to note that since we talked about some prior stories, I want to take a piece of your book where you really took, talk about forward-looking challenges and in particular deglobalization. What you wrote blew my mind. I hadn't even connected these dots. Um, and you write about how companies really have to weigh questions around supply chain, data privacy, immigration, regulation, so much more. Can you set the stage for what deglobalization could mean for companies and how you're thinking about that? Yes, you know, um, absolutely. So I think one of the challenges is that uh, we have had a phenomenal uh, period of economic growth and success. So certainly the period between 1950 and 2008 in many ways mirrors the Gilded Age in the United States of 1870 to 1900. There was a lot of economic growth globalization in terms of trade, in terms of the movement of people, in terms of capital, uh, in terms of global cooperation with institutions. Um, But also, you know, we saw that there was the emergence of a lot of large, important corporations um, that were really driving a lot of the um, the agenda in terms of growth uh, in partnership Mm -hmm. with government. But that is is a world, um, if you take a step back, um, and I think Freedom House, um, th- their data shows that we've only had liberal democracy um, and market capitalism for 1% of human history. Um, so if I go back to and start to think about one of the key responsibilities of a board on a regular basis is to mitigate for risks, we need to start thinking about, well, wait a second. So odds are that we might be in a world that's much more challenged from a, this I, this more ideal, at least certainly in my mind, this idealized mm-hmm. uh, global environment. And we've seen that. We've seen it with respect to trade. Um, we've seen the emergence of more bilateral regional um, agreements, TPP, uh, NAFTA, which obviously turned to USMCA, Brexit. I mean, this is really uh, affecting not just trade and goods and services, but also supply chains. Um, I, you know, as you mentioned, I happen to serve on the board of 3M. We make the masks, so we've been making a lot of the masks. Um, real issues with the DPA, the Deferred Prosecution Agreement. That, uh, oh, excuse me, the, uh, it was actually not the, it wasn't a prosecution agreement. It was a DPA, um, which uh, uh, the president, uh, former President Trump, put in place, um, basically restricting the sale of masks uh, outside of the. Uh, uh, the United States during COVID. So there are real geopolitical issues that emerge, but it's also about mm. capital flows. Um, you know, people who like yourself who worked in finance, you're familiar with the uh, the uh, carry trade. You borrow cheaply in New York and London and you invest in high risk adjusted returning uh, environments like Brazil and Argentina and South Africa, mm-hmm. etc. Um, but that world is very fractured now with uh, with home biases and in, in investors, but also uh, capital controls. You start to think about immigration and how much that is a top topical issue, and people you know across the world resisting uh, immigration, creating uh, pockets of disorderly immigration. We've seen it in Europe. We're seeing it in the southern border of the U.S. That has a lot of implications for how companies hire. How are you going to mm-hmm. hire? You don't have that global talent pool. And then, of course, you think about the splinternet and the real risk of fracturing um, around uh, 
technology and intellectual platforms where there could be one Chinese-led, one U.S.-led, and what that might mean for how do you run a global business. And, you know, dare I say it, um, finally, the, the breakdown of cooperation, as we've known it from the Bretton Woods in 1944, um, you know, where we actually had a liberal order, the World Trade Organization, World Bank, IMF, are now being challenged by um, Chinese, the, R, the Chinese in, uh, initiatives such as the RCEP, as well as uh, um, Belt and Road, um, but mm-hmm. also within European and America, um, sort of the allies, there are real tensions. And we've seen that with the, the rollout of vaccines and COVID response um, and, the, right. and the World Health Organization. So I, I sort of have gone through a whole portfolio of issues, but the bottom line is that we have to mitigate for those risks um, we could wake up in a world where, which is much more fractured, much more balkanized. Um, you know, how do you think about running your business in a world that's much more siloed? I think is an important question that companies and boards need to think about, given Absolutely. the odds on. Um, and so that that is a very much important thing. I will just also say, Emily, if I may, that it's also not just about again thinking about the risks and the downside. It's also thinking about where the opportunities may lie. Um, because as as you know, you know, you, as, as I mentioned, you can't uh, shrink your way to growth. You've got to think about mm-hmm. expanding um, the the company for for longer periods. The glass is half full, even though those are very weighty questions. Uh, lastly, we talked about this a little bit, and I'm sure you've been waiting for us to go back to it because investor and the investor base is dramatically changing. Uh, when a new director joins a board, I'm really curious about the advice that you give them with dealing with investors. And I'm thinking institutional investors demanding more passive investors and how they align themselves. And of course, activist investors becoming the norm. How do you even advise on that front? Well, you know, I think the most important thing is to read up on the motivations and the the, the angles that uh, the, the investors may take. I think that we tend to think about large, powerful investors, whether they're an activist or a passive investor, as being sort of out there to cause trouble. Um, and I think that, that sometimes people uh, take that approach, and I think that's not a, an, an ideal approach. I mean, I think they are, we're actually all on the same side, um, but perhaps there is a, a delta or a gulf of information that we might have as board members um, and in sort of insiders that mm-hmm. they might not have. And so I think there's a lot of utility in talking to and engaging with um, these uh, the um, is shareholders. But it's really important for them to also understand that as a fiduciary, it's not my, just my responsibility to cater to the big and the powerful. We need to think about mom and pop who bought a few shares, uh, you know, and have, have kept them from generation to generation. The retail investors. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And retail investors matter a lot uh, and they should matter equally to the more powerful investors. Um, but, you know, it's also really important to think about the end asset owner, not just asset managers, the asset owner, because very often they have um, very aligned goals for the long term. Um, They're not just looking for shorter term returns or the next quarter. Um, They are also interested. And many of the we're talking about pension funds. We're talking about uh, pensioners um, and people who invest in these uh, large organizations to manage and whose money is being managed. Um, they want to see investments in education and in infrastructure. I would hazard a guess that they'd like us to look through these quarterly uh, sort of uh, um, machinations and think more strategically about what what are we doing for society? How are we helping society to progress um, and, and not just thinking about what their returns are in the short term? So it's not, I, I think that it's, it's a complex web because there are many different types of uh, shareholders. Now we have to think about those stakeholders and thinking about whether we need to prioritize is there a ranking system what metrics matter to them um you know there's a lot of work that i think the best institutional investors are doing because before what used to happen is we would have two people show up from the same organization mm-hmm. one of them would be box checking in terms of whether we're meeting esg requirements right. another one would be thinking about traditional financial returns that message needs to be married as well mm-hmm. so there's a lot of work going on i'm optimistic i think we all are on the same side for human progress and society and and really um economic development and, and uh, you know, a, a functioning global economy. 
um, and and world. And uh, and in that respect, I think we've got more in common than than we we might want to believe. <laughs> I think that's an optimistic note to wrap up on, Dr. Dambisa Moyo. Thank you so much. This book really lays out what a board member does, how they operate, the focus areas, and all of the really broad topics that you need to think about and getting into the nitty gritty. It was a fascinating read and I really appreciate the discussion. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Afterwards, one of nine C-SPAN podcasts available on our website. You can find them all by going to cspan.org forward slash podcasts or on our C-SPAN radio app.